0: Ladies and gentlemen, this performance will include the mysticism of manure, the spirituality of suffering, and much more, as we discuss with Salt Project Creative Director Matthew Meyer Bolton the beauty of Lent through the eyes of Vincent van Gogh. All this and more on today's episode of Created Things. Solemn welcome to Created Things, the only arts podcast you can listen to, even if you're missing one ear. Uh, I am mm. psychotherapist and artist Jacob Flores Popcheck. With me, as always, is my good and excellent friend Dominican friar Father Gabriel Toretta. How are you doing today, Father?
1: You know I'm doing great, actually. Um, two ears, although our uh, our YouTube viewers can't tell because I keep uh, I keep the less seemly one uh, comfortably out of sight. But uh, but I promise you, it's there. Uh, yourself,
0: I'm doing pretty good. Just before this episode, uh, Father Gabriel was giving himself a quick impromptu haircut, um, and I was very concerned that he was going to accidentally cut off one of his ears.
1: Yeah, I did. I did cut off. Um, yeah, like quick impromptu uh, dude haircuts tend to do, I uh, I was like, I'm just thinking to myself like, I know what to do. I've been doing this for a long time. You know, it's fine. Give myself this haircut. It's all great. Uh, and before I knew what I was doing, I had turned this into... Um, uh, a chonmage, technically speaking, which is the uh, which is the haircut that uh, 18th century Japanese samurai would have, um, which is where you um, which is where you actually this this whole middle horseshoe, you just shave that to the bone, like you shave that down, and then you keep the sides as long as possible. Now the part mm-hmm. of the chonmage I couldn't actually do is that you then get a ponytail in the back, but then because a normal ponytail in the back. Um, is A, dumb, and B, your enemy can grab it from behind and then drag your head around so you will kill you. Uh, so they would take that, and then they would put it pointing upwards.
0: Oh sure, so yeah, I've seen if, I've seen so photos of that.
1: Yeah, so if this looks, if this sounds insane mentally, like I promise you, it looks more insane than that. Uh, yeah, because you've got this big bald horseshoe with this hair point, this this ponytail hair pointing directly at you, as a viewer, um, which is a bold visual look, which I accidentally gave myself, uh, and so I had to. Um, <clears throat> Go a hundred percent clean shaven. So um, this
0: this is coming from a man who is part of a uh, ecclesiastical history of very bold haircut looks.
1: Yeah, very bold moves. You know, actually with we had tonsures. This and... is see, this is the thing. The Dominican Order, uh, properly speaking, until uh, until the mid twentieth century, uh, actually had one distinct set hairstyle that that uh, that everyone had to get. You know, so like. Um, Like a
0: boy band in that way.
1: Like a boy band. Yes, exactly. The Dominicans, the OG boy band, you know, is that everyone had to have this one haircut, which we call the tonsure. Um, And ours was sort of legendary uh, because it was like the sort of most intense of all of them, which is that you take this like a thin belt, basically, and you wrap it around your head uh, and then you shave to the bone everything that is not covered by the belt.
0: Oh damn. Yeah. That's a very interesting way of, of handling the rubric.
1: Yeah, dude. We just we did it, you know? We did it. Um this is this was something that is marked in Saint Dominic, the founder of the Order, right? Uh he's uh, it, it, people who knew him said that one thing that was remarkable about him was that his his tonsure as we call it the corona or whatever the tonsure never broke which means that he never went bald in the like creepy creeping up the temples kind of bald way that most dudes go bald oh. uh, <laughs> so St. So Dominic died with all of his hair uh, except for bit, the part that he shaved on the top except yeah. for all of it being removed yeah so there it is Right.
0: but uh, yeah <laughs> that's badass I like it I like it a lot well, speaking of bold looks, um, I'm very excited to bring in uh, our guest today, who is sort of a, uh, a an expert on on bold looks, on on arts, on theology. In that way, um, why don't we just bring him in now? Great, our guest today, as I said, is is uh, he's kind of a, a a man of all of all uh skill sets. He's an author, he's a speaker, he's a podcast host in his own right. He's also the creative director of the Salt Project, which is why we're having him on here today. Uh you can find it at saltproject.org. Uh please, welcome to the podcast, everybody. Matthew Meyer Bolton. How you doing, Matthew?
2: I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, guys.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. We're we're really excited to have you. Um I, I found out about Salt Project and about you because <laughs> I was scrolling through, you know, this, this is a podcast where we, we look at the arts, right? All sorts of arts, kitschy arts, campy arts, ancient traditional arts. And we do so from my lens, which is an artist and a psychotherapist, so specifically a psychological lens. And we look at them from Father Gabriel's lens, which is sort of this historian and theological lens. So we're, we're coming in from some weird areas. And, you know, our algorithms listen to us at all times. Big Brother is watching. And so because we're doing this podcast, I assume, I suddenly start getting ads on my Facebook for a Lenten devotional that combines the art of Van Gogh, mental health principles, creative exercises, and deep Christian traditional spirituality. And I'm like, as far as targeted ads go... Was this one meant for any <laughs> other
2: person than me? No, yeah, we made that ad only for you. It's a very, very targeted ad. It's uh,
1: yeah, un- unusual yeah, so...
2: f- to have one person in your target set, but that's what we decided to do.
1: But you, <laughs> yeah, the good one no, is so you. Special. You got a hundred percent of your target audience. You <laughs> that's, know? Right, like, that's right, like a hundred percent success yeah, rate. Like that's exactly. amazing.
0: <laughs> so I want to talk to you about this um, this Van Gogh project that that. I think should be sort of the center topic of today. Sure, um, But because it's very exciting, it's, it's right up the alley of what we do here. Um, but before we get to that, it might be good to just introduce listeners to you and, um, and to Salt Project itself. Could you give us a little bit of your background?
2: Sure. I um, dove into uh, theology in my 20s. I had grown up in, in the Midwest and then spent most of my adult life uh, in New England and ended up going to Harvard Divinity School and then back to the Midwest for the University of Chicago for uh, a doctorate in theology. Mm-hmm. And yeah, sorry, And then throughout uh, that, those studies, I just continued to uh, fall in love with the ways in which the theological traditions within Christianity, and other traditions for that matter, and the artistic traditions, primarily in the West but also beyond uh, the Western world, uh, intersect and overlap, and in many cases are indistinguishable, so you 've got you know the Bible, you could see the Bible really as a kind of library of the arts there's there's music lyrics in there there's stories there's uh rhetoric, you know the beauty of language poetry
0: weird beat poetry yeah, yeah
2: weird beat poetry exactly liturgical chants, you know there's all kinds of arts that are through and through the theological traditions. The deeper you go, the more artsy it gets. Um, and so a lot of my studies and then a lot of my teaching, I ended up teaching at Harvard Divinity School, and then at uh, I was the president of Christian Theological Seminary. So a lot of that kind of work just hung out in those intersections and overlaps between the arts on the one hand and theology on the other. And, of course, Van Gogh, you know, good old Vincent, is right there at that at that uh, intersection and really spent his short life right there at that intersection. So SALT Project is my wife and i run it it's a small film and print per devotional uh production company and we do devotionals every lent and we've done poets before we've done mary oliver for example we've done emily dickinson this year we said you know what we should check out this you know possibility of doing a devotional not on a poet but on a visual artist and and vincent of course popped right to our minds so you know they're not not every artist it was as literary as Vincent Van Gogh was. Not many people think of him as a literary person, but he was, he read all the time. Uh, When he wasn't painting, he was reading. And then he wrote all the time too. So he wrote letter after letter after letter to other artists, to his brother Theo, who was an art dealer. So you've got all this material to work with in terms of what he's thinking while he's doing all of these incredibly prolific and vivid paintings In 1890, with the year of his death, he was doing one painting a day, if you can imagine that. So the guy was just crazy uh, in that sense. He gets called crazy in the mental health sense. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, you know, uh, he's sometimes known as the sort of crazy artist who, you know, did these things to himself. But as you well know, and your listeners know, mental health is a, a live issue for so many people. It's not a kind of outlier sort of a thing. Uh, fully half of all American adults will encounter some kind of mental health struggle over the course of their life. So Vincent van Gogh is uh, a person of great devotion, of great artistic ambition, and also someone who struggled with mental health. And all those things, I think, are things that make him very relatable today. So that's why we decided to make this little devotional. It's 24 pages. You you can do double-sided, two pages on each side. So it's six pieces of paper folded up into a booklet. It's It's a downloadable resource printed out six pages folded up you got a 24 page devotional and that allows you to walk through the season of Lent the 40 days of Lent with Vincent at your side
1: that's that's a fascinating that's a fascinating prospect um, and I think it's great uh, to know that there's also this kind of Backlog of these things, so to so to speak, um, a, li- a library of these that uh, would be av- those are available as well for um, people, so pe- people for t- to access and download and purchase as well.
2: Absolutely, we do a new one each okay. year. So salt is yeah. about a dozen years old. So there's lots yeah. of uh, the library.
1: That's just, that's exciting, you know. So people can kind of work at their own pace with this and then other Lent's, you know. Um, Can you talk a little bit about um, about the season of Lent? I mean, about why you grab onto that, um, why you think sort of Vincent for Lent? um, I mean, even just the idea, the idea of Lent itself, right? I mean, uh, like, okay, I'm a Catholic priest, like Lent is, lent is, you know, my bread and butter, like I, this is in my bones, but it's not, you know, it's not, it's not a member of like every, every Christian's mode of
2: worship, every Christian's experience, you know? So what if you could just talk about that a little bit for us? Yeah, sure. Well, let's start with the name, the, the word Lent. If you look closely at that word, you can begin to see that it's related to the old English word for lengthen, And that's where we get the word Lent. And what that's referring to is in the Northern Hemisphere, the lengthening light of the spring. And so it's a kind of the idea of the dawn. Each day is a little bit longer. The dawn is moving into the day. We're not quite in the day yet, but we're starting to turn toward uh, the season of spring, the season of resurrection. So Lent is a time for preparing for that celebration of resurrection. I like to think of it that the idea in the tradition is, That Easter is so important. You know, you, you zoom way out, you look at Christianity. Christianity is a religion of two great feasts. It used to be Epiphany was really the important feast rather than Christmas. Nowadays, it's more Christmas, but that's one. So let's say Christmas is this great feast that we celebrate. And then, of course, Easter is the other. Easter is probably more important in terms of the theological history. But these days, Christmas has become just as or even maybe even more important. But in any case, you've got this tremendous feast. And what the tradition has done is to say, we need to party more than just one day. We need to have a whole season of Easter, which is that 50-day period of Easter between Easter and Pentecost. But in order to have a good party, you need to prepare. So you've got to get yourself ready, got yourself get yourself in the right headspace, maybe clear out some cobwebs or change some of your life that needs to change. So they created this period of preparation. Many people, by the way, would get baptized on Easter, because if we're going to have this huge party on Easter Sunday, that's a perfect time for baptism, right? If you're if you're considering getting baptized. So Lent becomes a really important uh, time for those novitiates or those, those about-to-be-baptized people to prepare themselves, prepare their hearts, prepare their lives for that great change of, of baptism in their future. So Lent is a time for the unbaptized and the baptized to prepare, to get ready for this big party of uh, resurrection that's going to start, kick off on Easter Sunday. It's such a great mystery that we need time to prepare for it. So over the centuries, this time to prepare for it became the 40 days of Lent. It's not the 50 days of the party, right? The party is more important than the prep, but the prep is really important. So there's 40 days of Lent. There are biblical passages that are associated with that. There's a lot of uh, a strong tradition of, of confession, of, of doing some inventory, moral inventory for, our, you know, how can we improve? What are we doing in our lives that are, that are, that are very good, but how can we also enhance and, and deepen our lives? So Lent is a time of introspection. Of Some people talk about it as spring cleaning. You know, you kind of like you clean your house out, you clean yourself out. And you get ready for that for that grand celebration of Easter tide, those fifty days of Easter. So that that's Lent from ten thousand feet. Yeah, you know, and just and
1: that just kind of a, a postscript to that. Um, sure. You know, you you, you bring, bringing up Epiphany actually brings us into an important connection there because um, one of the earliest observances that we have really well recorded, um, I believe it's from Alexandria. I'm always I always forget. Uh, is from from as early as we have records, um, which will be like the late second century. Um. That they cel- that they would celebrate a um, actually post Epiphany um, period of kind of penance and prayer and yeah. things I um, mm-hmm. uh, designed to help the newly baptized who at w- that point would have been uh, th- then and there would have been baptized around like on Epiphany sure um, to to allow them to kind of allow that to sink into their hearts um, by sort of like following out with penance um, which then as in the broader tradition gets taken up in exactly the way that you talk about which it gets sort of shifted to say like Rather than like a post-baptismal, like now let's now let's think about how this kind of goes. It's the other way around. It's as you say, like this this mode of preparation, um, Mm -hmm. which I think opens us to a really exciting kind of concept about like the specific thing that you're doing, which is um, preparing the heart, learning how to hear and think in in the when in the poetic commentaries and then learning how to see um in the project that we're talking about today yeah um, which great. I think is a very exciting connection
2: no that's lovely i like that a lot some of your listeners may or may not know that that van gogh really wanted to to follow in your footsteps uh, maybe not to be a catholic priest he was from the dutch reformed mm. tradition but to be a pastor to be a a, mm. a minister to go into the ministry that was his dream his father was a very kind of uh, strict and uh, by the book, uh, Dutch Reformed pastor, he wanted to become a pastor himself. Vincent did. He was the eldest child of the family, and he ends up becoming a missionary to minors uh, in Belgium and uh, he he really is uh, his dream, his initial dream is to to follow in those kinds of footsteps of 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 Christian service. He ends up the the committee that oversaw that kind of missionary work ends up deciding that he's not a good preacher. And so they oh, no. basically decommissioned him because he wasn't a good preacher. Oh, no. And so that's when he made the turn. He was 27 years old. He made the turn to say, you know what? I'm going to become a painter instead. My gloss on that is he's still preaching. He's just preaching with color and light instead of with words. And I think his work really bears that out. He's 27 when he makes that move. He dies uh, by suicide, as as many of your listeners know, uh, in, in, uh, at the age of 37. So just 10 years later. So all that work that we celebrate and admire happens in that decade. Incredible. It's incredible. It's incredible. I,
0: I, I want to be able to talk cause I'm so excited about the product itself and, and finding this shared space in the Venn diagram between the arts and psychology and, 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 uh, faith that we sort of thought that we had the the market on. And then, you know, you, you kind of bring out that you no know, Van Gogh has done this first. And, um, and that's just so exciting to me, but you're talking a lot about Van Gogh's personal experience yeah. of faith and religion. I don't want to like, you know, out you or anything like that, but I don't suspect based on the wording of your site and things like that, that you are of the Catholic tradition, the way that we are. And growing up, I mean, Lent was one of my favorite seasons. I mean, as a very little kid, you know, going around as a little Catholic boy and, and putting like purple cloth yeah. over all the crucifixes yeah. in the house, and you know all these traditions and hot cross buns, and, <laughs> yes. and you know going to stations of the cross with my dad while my mom stayed home and took a nap so she could get a break from us, yeah. and and all <laughs> sorts of things. You know, I have these really profound, sentimental, romantic um, experiences with Lent, but. My my Christian friends, my, my sort of Protestant friends growing up, my agnostic friends growing up, they had no idea what the hell Lent was. <laughs> it was the furthest thing from their experience. So what what's your personal sort of emotional experience with this season yeah, growing up and throughout your life? That's a
2: great question. I grew up Presbyterian, so I'm definitely in the Protestant side of the spectrum. But I'm also part of a generation that kind of—a uh, generation of Protestants, that is— that has been more and more appreciative of what's sometimes called the liturgical year. And some some Protestants say, Oh yeah, that's Catholic, you know. Of course it's not Catholic, it's it, it belongs to the whole tradition. But it's true that, that in the twentieth century, say, or the twenty-first century, a lot of Catholic communities Uh, celebrate and have a history of celebrating those liturgical seasons more so than some Protestant communities. But more and more Protestants are discovering the beauty of that and the power of that and the depth of that. I personally, I'd be curious about your guys' perspective on this historically. I trace that to what I think is really the most important religious event of the 20th century, which is Vatican II. So in Vatican II, there's this opening up to Protestants. I mean, you know, there were Protestant theologians who were invited to be observers and to participate in that sense in Vatican II. And there was a kind of um, after effect of Protestants feeling like, well, you know, if they're opening up to us, we should open up to them and maybe we can kind of share resources or share perspectives. And you get in the sort of 70s and 80s and 90s when I was growing up more and more interest in things that were supposedly quote unquote Catholic that become more and more a part of your typical presbyterian church. So now a lot of people who who purchase these devotionals that we work with, we work with thousands of churches, a lot of them are protestant and a lot of them are buying lenten materials because they see the power of having a season of preparation. So I think this is a kind of broad trend among many Protestants, not all Protestants, but many Protestant denominations that are more and more appreciative of the liturgical year. I took a course when I was a student at Harvard Divinity School. It was with John Levinson. It was on Judaism. So Harvard Divinity School, he used to teach at University of Chicago, too. They, Harvard said, teach intro to Judaism for us. And so John Levinson scratched his head and he said, OK, I'll teach intro to Judaism Judaism, but I won't do it by saying, okay, here's what we believe. And here are the big principles of Judaism. He said, we're going to do the liturgical year. That's how you're going to understand Judaism. You start with the festivals, you work your way through, you know, figure out what Pesach is, you know, what Passover is. That's how you should study Judaism. As a student, this was a mind blowing thing for me. And I thought there should be a course on Christianity that does the same thing. And so, you know, Long, a long time later, when I joined the faculty at Harvard Divinity School, I taught a course called Christianity colon, the liturgical year as a way in not just to those seasons, but to the faith itself. So to look at the whole of Christian faith through the liturgical seasons.
1: That's that is that's so fantastic. I um. I I grew up Protestant I, a Protestant and specifically Presbyterian myself oh, okay. uh, and the the, the community uh, that I grew up in was um they, they, at the time at least they were farther away from the liturgical tradition like I I remember this um amazing sort of Easter where uh, the pastor sort of mentioned uh, that it was Easter uh and you know enthused about that for a little while and then continued with part 21 of his 37 part commentary on romans (laughs) uh which was this amazing i thought this is like this is this is like the beauty this is presbyterianism like this is old school right the word this is like the john (laughs) knox goodness you know it's like listen we're just we're doing it you know beautiful (laughs) but like exciting um but you so this is this is a really, I think, a fascinating context to bring this up. And so we're thinking about like different ways in the in which Christians have appropriated um the liturgical year, have appropriated like thinking about um the living in the seasons and all this. Um of course, you know, there's also this very um often vexed history of um the Christian reception of visuality of seeing things yes, of yes. like the way in which seeing plays a role in being a christian now this is this is a lot of what i do in my academic work this is i think a lot of what you're doing in your in your practice and in your and in your academic work yourself i mean just i mean and you, because in part you see these interesting con- uh contexts in the scriptures where it's already confusing you know so you have like just in the Mosaic law, just, just in the book of Exodus, you have these very strong, like, you know, guess what? It's a commandment, make no graven images. And And then like, and then like two chapters later, it's like, by the way, Bezalel uh, is the artisan, you know, that's commissioned by God to like make a bunch of images, you know, (laughs) like make these cherubim, make this ark, make all these things, you know? And there's this, there's this tension kind of that goes through Christianity that has certain high points and whatever. Um, I, but um, how, mm-hmm. just from your perspective, like how, how does a Christian begin to see um, art as a part of his life with God? That's the biggest possible question I could ask yeah like a you good just, told me just from your experience and your ideas I mean this this project that you're doing is so putting it in front of people as an opportunity to practice it themselves but like what is this like yeah. you in your own thoughts
2: well I guess the first my my, my first thought is that It's so true that throughout Christian history, many of the arts, not only visual arts, also musical arts and and theatrical arts, have come under times of suspicion or periods or eras or, or, or communities that are very suspicious. Usually that's because of the power of those forms. So to take Calvin, for an example, right, the sort of font of what becomes Presbyterianism eventually. You know, he uh, was very suspicious of songs on the one hand, the kind of, you know, songs that might be sung in kind of popular music, but he loved the psalms, you know, and he thought that we should be singing psalms. The congregation should be singing, not just a choir, but the congregation should be singing these psalms. We should be singing in French. You know, he's in Geneva, which at that time was French speaking. He says we need to hire poets to translate from the Hebrew into metrical French so we can sing these uh, old, old, ancient songs in our mother tongue. He would say, so he sees the power of music. On the but he's also you know at the same time because of that power he's worried about you know not having too much power or falling into a kind of idolatry about the power of the art. So I think you get that tension throughout Christian history. There's a huge controversy as you well know around icons earlier in Christian history. You know, some say they're blasphemous, some say they're they're essential to Christian life. So you again and again you get these arts because they're so powerful become objects of uh, enthusiasm and objects of suspicion. I think we're in an era where a lot of Christians, including Protestants—I'll speak for sort of the part of Protestantism that I know best—where we're saying, you know, I get the idea, the focus on the Word, you know, the focus on on Scripture, the sort of words on the page, but God is, in Jesus Christ, incarnate. And that means not just words, it means eyes and ears, and and it means the whole sensorium. And of course, liturgy, worship itself, is designed to engage—we say the five senses, but— you know, scientists have pointed to many, many other senses that we have, not just the classic five, the sense of movement, for example, or the the, the, the kinesthetic sense, uh, the sense of position in space. That's a, That's another sense that we have. And liturgy engages that, worship engages that. And I think there's a hunger over these last decades, and I think it's going to continue as far as I can see, in saying God wants to engage us holistically, and the human being which Jesus incarnates, right, or, the, you know, God incarnates the human form in Jesus of Nazareth, includes all of these dimensions of, of the senses. And so sight, we are ex- extraordinarily visual. We're also, we, we depend on hearing, we depend on lots of things, um, but in a special way, sight is how we get through the world. It's how we get around. It's how we engage. It's how we decide. It's how we uh, encounter each other often. There there are many other senses that we use, of course, and Sight is, we don't want to overstate this, but Sight's very powerful in human communities. So from my point of view, and I think from a lot of people's point of view within Protestantism, there is a kind of uh, gift that I think, frankly, Roman Catholic and I would say Eastern Orthodox traditions have been more sensitive, more alert to the power of visual gifts that are there for the uh, enjoying, but also for the wise use. We don't want to lose track of the fact that, you know, these things can be misused, and certainly they are misused. But if we have the wisdom in mind, then to engage a figure like Van Gogh, or we can name many other visual artists, who are kind of allowing us to feel the gospel in different ways that there are there are emotions and even even uh intellectual ideas that cannot be expressed in words at least that's my claim and that those ideas you know when we look at a painting like uh crows over the wheat field that that famous van gogh painting or starry night a lot of people know starry night there's a there's an experience of engaging that kind of work that we we try to put words to it you know the the great art critics help us put words to it but there's always some, some surplus. There's always something left over. And it might be a, a pretty profound surplus that's left over once the words come to an end. So much of life is beyond words, right? So much of life is visual. So people like Van Gogh help us with that. And, and he really wanted to get to the essence of reality. And he thought he could do it better in some ways through paint than he could through words. He says that explicitly in some of his letters.
0: There is, with with Van Gogh, this desire to get at the kind of core of reality. Yes. Um, but, you know, you're talking about this sort of historical love-hate relationship, or or at least um, celebrating versus suspicious, uh, suspecting relationship yes. between Christian and the arts. And it seems to me that that is fully present in the heart of every artist, every creative person. And we talk a lot about it in this podcast— um how to be a creative you don't have to be an artist pope saint john paul ii his letter to artists talks about you know parents are creatives and, yes you know anyone who who anyone at all who who participates who choose to participate in the creative life of our creator god is by extension a a creative yes and and so and i think as a psychotherapist and I hear this all the time from my clients and I observe this all the time in myself, that that same kind of celebrating my own capacity for God and creativity and beauty and also deeply suspecting it and hating myself mm. is, is present in all of us. And it was especially present in, in Van Gogh maybe, or at least more acutely and obviously present in him. And I think what an interesting, what an interesting figure to follow us or to follow, I guess I should say, through the Lenten season. One of the things that I love about your program, this Van Gogh and Lent program that you're you're putting out, is that each reflection is followed by and you don't explicitly state this, but it's followed by sort of three action steps. One I would argue is a mental health action step, one I would argue is a creative prompt, and then one I would argue is is a like concept for prayer and and Mm -hmm. theological (laughs) interpretation. And You know, I I think that's such a cool thing. I talk a lot about how the Christian life is really a reintegration, right? You know, the catechism, for instance, defines... You know, chastity as as uh, the integration of sexuality within the person you know uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar talked about the disintegration yes. of, of that sin brings into the world so yes. you know what we're looking at I think what you're talking about needing to happen in the church and, and observing happening in the church is a reintegration yeah rehumanizing of,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right the reintegration of, of our perspective on our own beauty and creativity and then you're also sort of if I might be so bold extrapolating that, that Lent is a season for us to do that on an individual basis and and Van Gogh, as this person who experiences that war within himself, is a really 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 good
2: person to sort of look to as we make that journey on our own uh, I love that I think that's very well said uh, One of the things poetically that the tradition does is associate these forty days like whenever you hear the, the number forty you know that there's some kind of poetry going on there, and one of the classic forties is of course Jesus's forty days after his baptism in the desert or in the wilderness. And it's a time of struggle. It's a time of temptation. It's a time of being humbled. And, uh, Lent is a time of struggle, but there's a kind of, we don't want to just end with that word struggle. Struggle itself is creative, right? It's this, you know, the ancient Greeks, they, they divided all activity into at least two categories. And one of those is poesis. And that, that means making that, as you pointed out, parents are creatives, you make a meal, you're being a creative, you're, you're making, you, there's a kind of sense in which God is, is a divine poet. And so what Van Gogh helps us to see is the various ways that God is, is active and creative in the world all around us and within us, but there's also this implicit invitation. And I do think it intensifies during Lent to each of us to say, you know, come closer to that calling that you have to be creative, maybe in a way that's introspective, or individual it could also be a communal form of creativity or with your family or with with your friends or with one person but to think of lent these lengthening days when when the creativity of spring is coming close as a time of creativity i, I love that definition of lent that, that lent is an invitation to recover the deeply human act of making that, that really is profoundly who we are. You know, people say we're in the image of God, right? You hear that a lot? Oh, yeah, humans are in the image of God. Amago Dei. Well, what is the Imago Dei? In that story where we get that word, of course, in Genesis 1, that phrase, the image of God, let us make them in our image, in our likeness, that's a story of God as a maker, the, the, the poet of heaven and earth. That's what we see when we see God. And then we see a creature created in that image. So I think what the image of God in us really is, is that creativity. Could you speak a little more though to, because uh, I love what you're saying, but I,
0: I, I want to go even deeper Please. with it. You know, this wrestling that you're talking about as happening in the church that I'm arguing then also happens in the heart of, of every Christian, of every artist back and forth between, you know, hope and self-hatred and, and mm-hmm. self-doubt and celebration and suspicion and celebration like you're talking about yeah. in the church. Yeah. I mean, do you... What do you think of that as sort of a fundamental experience of the Christian, of an artist, of yourself? I mean, what's your own experience with that kind of classic artistic creative struggle within?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think one of the things that, that figures like Van Gogh do, and it's certainly not unique to Van Gogh, almost every artist who you get to know, whether it's a personal relationship or a, or a person you're reading about and studying, the more you get to know them, the more you discover that creativity is not, you know, you know, the artist gets an idea and walks into the studio and picks up the paintbrush or the pen and it just flows and the muse is there, you know. <laughs> we the- just talked
0: about this and we had a, We just did an episode. <laughs> on, uh, being a tortured artist and that like cliche of being a tortured artist and this idea that I just go in and I, I go and I be creative and things just pop out <laughs> of me, like so much beauty diarrhea. Right. And
2: it's just, <laughs> right, you know. right. I, was it Hemingway who said, you know, writing is easy. You just sit down at a typewriter and open a vein, you know, just, <laughs> it's just like, it's like, Amazing. you know, it's not easy. It's hard. It's, oh, it's, it is full of struggle and difficulty. And so, you know, normalizing that, I think, is, a, is an important thing. Um, it's not easy for any artist that I'm aware of. It's always a struggle. There are periods of, of dryness or, or lack of fertility or lack of ideas that could come in each day or in a period of, a, of an artist's life. Um, I can identify with that. There are times when, you know, I do some songwriting and there are times when the songs come easy and there are times when they come not at all you know and you're kind of banging your head against the wall um so i think our expectations and what we're what we're taking with us into the creative enterprise matter a lot because those those images we have can become obstacles right where we think well this should be easier for me or i'm not like those those other people who you know who just walk in and walk out and it's and it's so perfect it's, it's, it's hardly ever perfect, and you just keep at it. One of the inspiring things about Van Gogh is that he just kept going. I mean, he, would, he, he, he believed that there was something about working quickly that he thought could help him get more to the essence of his subjects. So he had a method where he was painting a painting a day, and part of it was he was looking for a, he called it a spontaneous style of painting. So, you know, a painting like Starry Night that a lot of people can picture, that it only took him something like a day or, or, or a short period of time to paint that. And you can see, if you look close, you can go and, you know, visit it even online and zoom in. I think uh, Google, Google Arts has it, so you can zoom way, way in, you can see the brushstrokes. But he's moving very quickly, and then he's just moving on. You know, that that's pretty impressive. A lot of times when I'm having trouble with a project, I just sit there and keep banging at it. And I don't, you know, I, I can't move on because I want to solve that problem. And so that that's something I struggle with. But I think every artist has their stories of struggle. And I think the more we share those, the more we can, you know, not necessarily solve them, because that's kind of the point is that you don't want to over fix or over solve, but, but maybe to normalize it, that life is full of struggle. And so, or so are the arts.
1: You know, that's, that's a really helpful context to put it in. And I didn't, I never knew that about the not only the aggressive, I mean, almost unbelievable pace that he was working at uh, in that very fertile period, um, but then also uh, the sort of stated goal of it, you know, the sort of seeking after an ever, like ever more spontaneous mode of creation. Um, I mean, it makes me think, I think at the, at the, this is not a part of the Japanese artistic tradition that he would have been familiar with, because he was mostly, to my knowledge, familiar with um, woodblock prints, which were being um, purchased in in copious uh, numbers at the period, and then uh, you know brought to um, brought to Western Europe and America. Yep. Um. But uh, but there there was a co- contemporaneous early modern um Japanese artistic movement um that was coming out of that was actually not just coming out of Zen Buddhist circles, but was actually a mode of Zen Buddhist practice which uh, aimed to make i S- create spontaneous images that would be um, a provocation of the heart unto enlightenment. So they had the loftiest kind of goal, you know, that you can have for a, for a Zen Buddhist. Um, so you, they have this stunning sort of visual character to them because the goal would be to, to do an entire painting in a single brushstroke or, um, or, or as few brushstrokes as possible. And everything is sort of like, um, sort of wildly fast. I mean, you it looks visually fast and, and, um, and it was with that specific goal of um, uh, that that spontaneity would sort of break uh, the mind's hold on, uh, on the what from the Buddhist perspective, the kind of falseness of reality. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting to hear that from a you know from completely his own genesis that there is um an analogous. So the goals are different. The pursuit is different, but that. Um, uh, that he is pursuing this sort of spontaneity as a mode
2: of, um, you could say, an artistic liberation, perhaps? Uh, would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's a lovely comment. Uh, you may know this book, or your listeners may know it. It's, it's called Van Gogh and God, a Creative Spiritual Quest by Cliff Edwards. This is kind of the the, the classic book in uh, uh, about Van Gogh and his spiritual side, and it also has uh, more than one chapter that focuses on the extent to which, number one, is Van Gogh being influenced by Japanese art? He clearly is. He's he's buying those prints in Paris that you just responded to. But number two, is he drinking from some of the same water that's kind of globally moving across the planet uh, among Mm -hmm. kind of artistic communities? Um, One of the moves that some Japanese artists were, were moving toward and certainly Van Gogh thought in these terms and was admiring a Japanese artists in these ways is that painting was seen not just as a method of recording, you know, you ask yourself, what do you think a painting is for? You know, what, what, what is a painting for? Is it for recording the beautiful branch on the almond tree? So you have a record of it, you know, kind of like a photograph, for Van Gogh, and I think for many Japanese artists that he was admiring, it's a mode of coming closer, even in a kind of oneness with the almond branch or with nature itself. He wrote time and again in his letters that he wanted to be one with nature. So he saw nature, certainly uh, during the portions of his life, which were which were many, and that it, it kind of rose and fell as his life went through its various uh, chapters when he's thinking theologically, he thinks of this as God's creation, right? God's creativity, and he wants to be one with that. But also he he admired the natural world so much that he admired people who were close to nature, and he saw painting as a way to, to engage a form of intimacy with the natural world, and with we could say with creation. That's one of the things he thought painting was for. The other thing he said to his friend Paul Gauguin, who he had a big fight with a big falling out with Paul So they had a tumultuous relationship, but they were very close friends. He said that for him, painting is for consolation and comfort for distressed mm. hearts. Mm. So to bring to bring comfort to distressed hearts. So one of the great discoveries for me in the research behind this devotional is this painting uh, called the lullaby, which you may know It's a woman sitting in a chair, very graphic wallpaper behind her. You can go see it. If you're in the New York area, you can go to the Met in New York and see it on the wall. Or you can hop online and go to the Met in the next five seconds (laughs) and see it. Uh, What it is, it's this woman sitting on a chair with this wallpaper behind her. She's holding a rope or a cord in her hand. In those days... Van Gogh's viewers would have known that this is a woman, the the other end of that cord would be on a cradle. And so this woman might have been in a rocking chair herself. She's rocking back and forth, pulling that rope and rocking the cradle. So the painting, you're you're regarding this painting of this woman, you are being placed, as it were, in the cradle. Hmm. What what Van Gogh wrote to his brother and to Gauguin about is that his idea, he he said, I want this painting to be in an Icelandic fishing boat. So not the high society, not the the hoity-toity rich who would buy the paintings, but in an Icelandic fishing boat, so that the fishermen, when they see this painting and they feel the rocking of the waves, would imagine themselves comforted, that they might be distressed, but they would be comforted. Now, this is so interesting. I'll say two more quick things. He, he actually drew in one of his letters his design in his mind. He wanted the, the, the lullaby, this picture of this woman with the rope, to be in the middle of a triptych of three images. On either side of the woman, he wanted sunflowers. So a lot of people know Van Gogh in his sunflower paintings. His image was a triptych, two images of sunflowers, and the lullaby in the middle. So it's an evocation, really, of an altarpiece, you know, a triptych, a classic triptych. The other thing is many fishermen had in their boats an image, and it was often an image of wait for it Mary, a Madonna mm.
1: sure. so he he knows sure. all
2: of this, he has this in mind, and so what we can do if we see it with the right way, I wish the Met would you know create the uh you know inside of an Icelandic mm. fishing boat and put yeah, two yeah, sunflower yeah. pictures there. This is what he thought painting was for, was to give, this is a, you know, in my mind, it's a it's a Madonna or even a divine image. And you think of Jesus saying that he wants to gather Jerusalem under his wings like a mother hen. So this is kind of picking up on the maternal images in scripture for God. So it's a kind of divine lullaby that is, you know, the rocking of the waves. All of creation is being comforted by God. That I think that's the kind of, big idea that's behind what Ben Gogh is up to in a picture like this. And you miss it if you just walk into, you know, yeah, it's a white wall and there's a picture of a woman with some fancy wallpaper. So that, that's the kind of thing that the deeper you go, the more you find about what kind of ambition, and it's a theological ambition, but it's also a kind of pastoral ambition to comfort his fellow neighbors. That, that's really what Ben Gogh's is up to in a lot of his work
0: you're you're talking so beautifully and first of all actually side note so anyone who listens to the podcast knows that i'm a big themed entertainment nerd theme parks immersive design science centers yeah I'm, yeah i'm still working on it's a sort of long project uh both to enter the industry and also to convince uh father gabriel that this is the coolest highest form of art <laughs> um but <laughs> he's working he's working on it yeah, yeah we're not there, there yet <laughs> we're nowhere near you got a there ways there to go But I love, but God, I just love as a sidebar the idea of like literally sort of putting. The floor on a on a mechanism that sort of shifts back and forth, so oh, you can stand yeah. and view the painting moving in the right way. God, that's awesome. That's I think the heart of immersion and immersive design. But back to the actual thing I want to ask you about. Yeah, I just wanted to nerd out for a second. Um, <laughs> you know, you're, you're talking. We're we're talking in in pretty lofty ways sure. about the artistic and philosophical goals that we we believe the three of us that Van Gogh would have had. Yep. given his spiritual tradition, given what he himself wrote, but there is is a a majority of sort of the artistic uh, intellectual community that argues that um, Van Gogh really turned away from faith and spirituality. And they often point to a a painting uh, called still life with Bible as, as a, examination of that. You, though, have a really interesting breakdown of that painting in this uh, Vincent van Gogh and the Beauty of Lent project that you're putting out.
2: Would you mind elaborating on, on your perspective there for us? Sure, that's a, that's a great uh, point and an important point. A lot of people think of, oh yeah, he had this early uh, desire to be a pastor and a missionary, but then he turns away from Christianity and ends up dabbling in Buddhism and other things, or just atheism even. And I think that's really a misreading uh, of Van Gogh. Number one, because a lot of his letters are full of theological ideas all the way through his life. But what one of the things people point to, including Cliff Edwards in this kind of famous book, he makes a, a similar argument. He says, oh yeah, here's how we should understand this still life with Bible. So let me describe this painting to you. You can also just hop online and take a look at it. But very briefly, there's a big Bible in the middle. It's on a table. The, the background is dark. There's a candle that's behind the Bible that's just gone out. You can see a little bit of smoke. Uh, And then in front of the Bible is a small yellow book. I think it's yellow, as I recall. And it's a novel, Emile Zola's novel, Joie de Vivre, or the, The Joy of Life. So the, the, the kind of typical reading of that is, oh yes, this is Van Gogh's father's Bible, which is probably true. It probably was his father's Bible. He painted it shortly after his father's death. So that's probably what the uh, candle, the snuffed out candle means that the father has just died. And that the uh, little novel... The uh, Joie de Vivre novel is the sort of turn toward modern literature, turn toward joy, turn away from the sort of dour, overbearing presence of his father and even the overbearing presence of the Bible. That's, that's the sort of typical reading. I think that's really a mistake. Number one, because of what I said about the letters, the letters show that he's not turning away from Scripture He's not turning away from faith. He's certainly not turning away from Jesus. He ends up calling Jesus in one of his letters the greatest of all artists because he Hmm. didn't work in marble or in paint, but he worked in human lives. He says he Hmm. worked in living flesh. He makes people into greater people. That's the greatest form of art, he says. This is talking about Jesus. So I think it's a mistake to think that he's turning away from Christianity. But how should we read this painting then, the Still Life with Bible? Well, here's what I think we should do. If you go take a look at this online in a way that you can zoom in, you can see very clearly that the Bible is open to a particular page. And that page is from the book of Isaiah, and it's the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, which is one of the chapters that's associated with the famous image of the suffering servant. In in Jewish tradition, the suffering servant means a whole set of things. In Christian tradition, that suffering servant is often interpreted as Jesus Himself—that Jesus is the one who will suffer through the passion, of course, the one, the, the same passion that's coming toward the end of Lent, right? The Holy Week and the, the, the betrayal and the uh torture and the crucifixion, the the passion of Christ. So this is a page about the suffering servant, and then that novel. A lot of people say, "Oh yeah, Joie de Vivre, the joy of life." He's really talking about joy and not suffering. But, of course, most people who say that haven't read the novel because the novel is about suffering. It's an ironic title. It's the, the, the heroine at the center of that novel goes through struggle after struggle, suffering after suffering. Van Gogh loved that novel, and it's, and it's a great novel, and Emile Zola is a great novelist. What I think is clear, at least this is my interpretation of the painting, I think it's much more persuasive, is that what Van Gogh is saying is that there is a deep kinship between the Bible on the one hand and modern literature on the other. We shouldn't let either one eclipse the other. We should see the deep kinship between them. That in the Bible, we hear about the suffering servant, Jesus. In this novel, we see another sort of image of a suffering servant, the heroine, Pauline, who's at the center of that novel, the Joie de Vivre. It's another way of saying that the Holy Spirit is active in Scripture, yes, of course, but also in the world around us and and in particular, at least in certain cases, in and through great art, like this great novel that he loves so much. He's not turning his back on the Bible any more than he's turning his back on this great novel. He just doesn't see them in competition. He sees them in a kind of concert or a kind of collaborative way that the Holy Spirit moves through all of these things, the ancient arts, like the prophecy in Isaiah, and the modern arts, uh, like this great novelist, which you know was a kind of contemporary novelist for him in the, in the mid-19th century. The, the candle in the back, yeah, it's probably his father's death. I, I, I do think that makes some sense, that the father has just died. You see a little bit of smoke. Here's his father's Bible. But this is Van Gogh's manifesto, his statement about how the Holy Spirit works through Isaiah and through Zola, you know, through, through different forms of literature. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Bible has a special place in Christian life. He's not putting them on the same level, but, but he is saying, let's not limit our vision to only the Bible. Let's also see how the Spirit and all these beautiful tropes and forms like the suffering servant trope appears again and again, even in our own lives. His life, this is the final piece of the argument, his life is he wanted to be a suffering servant. He, he very intentionally wanted to be, he said, I want to be poor. He said, I want to live the life of a dog. By that he meant very modest, humble, and, and moving into nature, toward nature, not away from nature. So he really wanted to be, uh, in a way, a kind of monastic or a friar, we could say, living a very uh, devoted but very modest life. You know, we think of monks or friars as, as devoting themselves to things like poverty and chastity and things like that. He had his desire to make those kinds of commitments and live that kind of a life. You know, the famous yellow house where he lived with uh, Paul Gauguin, his image was to have a little collective of artists who all lived together in that yellow house. And Paul Gauguin came and lived with him for a while. They had a falling out and it didn't work out, but he had that ambition. He wanted to be a kind of monk in a way uh, inspired by Christianity and also inspired by Zen Buddhist monks as well. He, 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 he saw the beauty of that kind of life.
1: Mm. You know, and that brings up, um, you know, we, we talked, we had a, we have an episode talking about tortured artists. We talked about tortured artists a little bit earlier, but it does bring us to a really important um, question I think, to continue to think through with van Gogh, yeah. um, which is that which comes up precisely from this painting, right? um, that, like, um, so the, he, Van Gogh wouldn't have particularly known this. There's no reason to think that he would have. But um, but this passage, um, Isaiah 53, um, in Christian tradition, um, especially, especially, especially with Augustine, but not only with him, like Basil the Great, working in a totally different um, or in a, in a far, far removed context as well, um, see this as part of, you could say, a diptych thinking about um, what did you just call me? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's I've always told you that. Um, think, you know, thinking Dipped about me. like what the nature of beauty is in the Christian life. So yeah. this yeah. is relevant because in, in Isaiah fifty three, um, there is this passage saying. Um, that uh, there was no form or comeliness in him, mm-hmm. um, so there's no there's no beauty in him mm-hmm. that he's been uh, that he's been so beaten and so bruised that there is nothing beautiful about him. There's nothing beautiful that would draw the heart, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then Augustine sees this as as a perpetual counterpart, simultaneous with um, the first verse of either Psalm 44 or 45, depending on how you read how you it, which is, it, yeah. um, it. was just uh, you are the fairest of the children of men. Yes. You were the fairest. You are the most beautiful of the children of men. Or the Song um, of Solomon
2: says, too. Yeah. The, the fairest, or the Song of Solomon, you know, Solomon, yeah. you know
1: yeah. exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Um, and that these are spoken specifically, he says, uh, that these are spoken both about Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is this, you know, Augustine makes this a, a major motive. Like it's one of the major engines driving his understanding of what beauty is, is this, this simultaneous understanding of suffering, the cross, and beauty—yeah, you know—there's um, yeah. just. But of course, we know this can go. This can go strange places. I mean, uh, suffering <laughs> often does not lead us to Jesus Christ, and most of Zola's oeuvre is about how it doesn't. You know, yeah, right, right, right. For instance, um, and like you know, Van Gogh takes his own life in a in a you know in a moment of tragedy. Absolutely, um, and all of the rest. Like, how do we? So we're proposing this as a Lenten devotional, and I mean, obviously Lent isn't just a a period of like hating ourselves or whatever, but like how, I don't know. I mean, like, how do we think through that? Like suffering... and beauty as mm-hmm. things that bring us closer to jesus christ like what how do we think how do we how do we allow that to be a purifying rather than a depressing or an end closing concept like how is that a, how is that a part of our liberation in jesus christ and our exposure to the deep the depth of the beauty of god rather than just some sort of prison of self prison of poverty prison of my circumstances
2: yeah well that's a great question and a deep one uh I mean, one key principle that I find myself using, and this is included in the devotional, this basic idea, is that, yes, there is a a strong claim within Christian traditions that suffering can have a redemptive dimension, a beautiful dimension that suffering can. But that does not mean that we should court suffering or prolong it. Rather, it means that the suffering that we will have, inevitably, every life will include suffering or has included it or has included it and will include it. Suffering is part of the human experience. That suffering that we neither court nor prolong, that suffering is not an abyss. On the face of it, it appears to be an abyss, a nothingness, a a nihil, a nihil, a nothing. But God says no, to that, that even that, even the thing that seems so abysmal, God will pull beauty out of that or, or, or somehow create a redemptive possibility precisely where there seems to be none possible. That's, to me, in a nutshell, the story of the Passion and the Cross that, you know, you sort of say, okay, let's create a story from scratch, like we've never heard of Christianity. Let's create a story that's the most abysmal story possible, you know? <laughs> so it's like all your friends— <laughs> They promise you they're going to stick with you and then they abandon you, right? So number, th- that that's pretty bad. Okay, great. Now let's have your body not just killed. That's too easy. Let's have you, you know, tortured, slowly, mocked, you know, let's have people mock you while they hurt you, you know? So it's not even, it's worse than Job in that sense. Like you, you have mockery. That's, to me, that's one of the most powerful parts of the, of the passion stories, the mockery, so you've got well. There's even
0: I would I would add even um, and this maybe will get us down a rabbit hole. But speaking as a psychotherapist is a point I often make to my clients. I mean, when we talk about the stripping of Christ, there's even a, a sexual humiliation component to that, a sexual trauma there, right? So there's literally the full
2: gamut of every bad thing you can imagine. Right. Yeah. I I love that word humiliation. I think that's I think there's many kinds of humiliation that are being included there, including the humiliation of being stripped. It's there's a kind of disgrace here. But even in that story, it reminds me of the story of Joseph, you know, where where you know Joseph says to his brothers, You intended it for evil, you know, selling me off into slavery, but God intended it for good. That somehow God works through even through the thing that on the surface really seems to be and really is evil. That it's it is evil to humiliate another human being, to destroy them slowly, to mock them and disgrace them. You know, if anything's evil, that's evil. Somehow God will say to the human uh hu- humankind that even in this terrible thing that god will somehow bring beauty and good out of that that that's the sort of mystery and the miracle of redemption that nothing is beyond uh god's uh redemptive love nothing and it but much seems to be beyond <laughs> god's love right much seems to be, be- beyond god's redemption But the kind of story, the upshot of the story of the Passion is that no, nothing is. That even the worst that we can do, you know, in those very moving, very moving line in the the Gospel of Luke, you know, forgive them. They know not what they do. Even the worst that we can do is still somehow within the ambit of God's forgiveness. That's the kind of dumbfounding. uh, Really, it strikes us, it should strike us silent. You know, it's so dumbfounding and that's that's the essence of of uh, the eucharist right it's it's jesus saying you're going to do all this stuff to me you're going to do it all you you say you're not you're denying it even as we're having this conversation but you're going to you're going to destroy me you're going to destroy my body you're going to spill my blood and i'm going to preemptively take my body and blood and give it back to you as a gift as a gift not just as a gift as a redemptive gift i mean it's this kind of the the world's greatest reversal right the cruelty turned into forgiveness so it's that kind of, I mean, you can think of it as a paradox, but I think of it more as almost like uh, to, to to keep the uh, East Asian theme going, almost a kind of jujitsu, you know, that God takes the worst of the world and somehow transforms it and gives it back as the best thing in the world. You know, it's like those paintings of the cross. The cross is arguably the worst thing in the world. It's a imperial uh, instrument of terror and intimidation and destruction. But now let's put silver and gold. Let's, let's let's put a beautiful tree of life behind it. You know, it's the worst thing transformed into the best thing. That's the Christian gospel in a nutshell. It is the ugliest thing we can think of and the most beautiful. And it all comes together on holy weekend, I guess, uh, right, right around the, the triduum, right? Those three holy days. And of course, Lent is a preparation for all that. So so yeah, that's how I, that that's this framework within which I would try to pull up some of the the beautiful aspects of your, your question about Augustine and the different sides of the biblical witness. You know, it's, yeah, you know, Van Gogh was a, he didn't really take care of his appearance. He was a pretty ugly guy. Uh, sure. at, least, at least he would say so. Uh, but he was also a very beautiful soul. You know, there's a sort of superficial beauty, which maybe we all should, sort of set aside i mean there's a place for superficial beauty but let's not get carried away or too focused on that what's really important is the depth of a beauty that can happen when we treat each other with dignity when we create beautiful works of art Um, and i think you know in van gogh you see both of that you see the ugliness and you see the the splendor the the glory of uh, human creation and divine creation moving through human communities
0: our viewers on,
2: on YouTube will
0: notice that more than I've ever done during an episode. Um, you know, as a therapist, it's sort of my habit to take notes while I'm talking to one of my clients. So I can sure say, that was interesting. We should probably go back to that. What, what do you mean you killed your, your whole family? Um, but, but I am um, <laughs> subtle hints, I,
1: subtle hints, you know,
0: <laughs> right. Exactly. But I, um, I'm doing that more than I've ever done in an episode where I'm just writing down little, little things I want to come back and ask you about. And there was something in there that I want to come back and ask you about, but, but, before I do that, sure. You know, sticking with this idea of suffering and and what's the healthy way to view suffering versus what is essentially a romantic or even fetishizing idea of suffering for suffering's sake, where artists can do it per the torture artist cliche that we've been discussing, or Christians can do it where it's just like, I'm just going to whip myself into heaven. You know, the analogy I often use with my clients, it's an artistic analogy is, is I don't know if you guys, either of you familiar with this, um, this trend on social media of, of what's called upcycling. It's not just recycling, it's upcycling, where you'll have um, a broken vase, but you'll use the pieces of that vase to make a mosaic. Or yes. you'll have a ratty old boot, but you'll use it as a planter for a, for a succulent, right? We, yep. we, we millennials love our succulents. And so, yeah. you know, they're... I always say, you know, God doesn't intend or cause suffering. He's not up there in heaven, you know, with his stroking his long beard on his throne saying, <laughs> I'm going to make this guy's dog die and that will teach him. You know, there's a, there's yeah. a joke about the song, um, that terrible, terrible, terrible song. Uh, we, we try not to objectively judge any art, but I can objectively judge this. The terrible song, The Christmas Shoes by New Song, where where, you know, literally God just... Basically, gives this little boy's mom cancer to teach the singer of the song that Christmas is important, right? Like mm-hmm. we, we will, we will often think that like God is this torturous asshole who just revels in right? doing dark things, but for our greater good. And I say no, God is an artist who you know observes the ratty old boot right. that sin causes right. and says, "How can I upcycle this into something beautiful?" And Van Gogh, you point out in your in your uh, materials for this this program yeah. had very much the same attitude towards ugliness where he would talk about what, what TikTok zoomers might refer to as the stinky a lot where he, <laughs> he found the manure and the dung of, of the farmland, beautiful and mysterious and sacred in a way. Yeah. The, and the, the ratty paint, old boots. And the ratty old boots, literally the <laughs> R- ratty old literally boots. Literally
2: the man. boots. He, he painted the shoes.
0: Right. And, and so there is this godlike perspective on how, this, this manure, this ratty old boot, is going to be there either way. I didn't cause it. I didn't will it. I didn't make it. Right. That's God's view. That's the artist's view. But- can I make something beautiful out of it for the sake of this person that I love? For Van Gogh, that's the viewer. For God, that's his children. Yes. And I would offer that that is the healthy quote unquote middle ground or or even I would argue the higher reality of of what suffering is. It's not something we avoid. It's not something we court, as you say. Yes. But it's something that when it arrives, like the ratty old boot, we say, Could I could I by God's grace alone plant a succulent
2: in this boot? Could I paint it? Yeah. Could I uncover the beauty that that is there somehow you know yeah i i, I love that idea of of upcycling or the Germans have a term alfebung, you know where you you lift you lift, lift something up. up to a higher level and and thereby create a a new sense of that same thing, but now at a higher level, you know, I love that it's like kind of like modulating in music up to a higher key. And I think Van Gogh that's that describes a lot of his work. He's he's very interested in you know potato peeling, uh, you know people rural folks who are working in the in the mud, and he saw them as more dignified, more human, more graceful than a lot of the urbanites that he knew in Paris when he lived with his brother in Paris. So he, he sees he's wanting to turn a lot of the world's hierarchies upside down, and he's wanting to do that through his work. I think he, he's most definitely preaching here, He's but he's preaching with paint.
0: I want to cut back to, though, a, a point you made right at the beginning of the podcast when you were talking about. Mental health statistics, yeah, and you were you were you know valiantly trying to not make light of of his quote unquote craziness, yes, um, by illustrating the fact that you know many of us have mental health issues. I think you threw out the statistic, you know, something like fifty percent or over fifty percent of adults. But I, as a therapist, as we go further. I think, you know, especially from a Catholic perspective, one hundred and fifty percent of us are radically crazy in in you know unique ways, and that is the ultimate, especially during Lent. I would argue the ultimate ugliness that Christ wants to with us consecrate like the like the mud that he spits in to cure the blind man or the you know right. the shit that Van Gogh is smelling and finding something sacred in you know Rather than saying, I need to totally reject my crazy and recover from it to become some ideal, you know, best version of myself. Right. Or rather than mire in my own crazy and say, this is just my personality, live with it. <laughs> right. It's, it's, um, uh, it's okay. this idea of can, can God consecrate my crazy this Lent?
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Not and do it away. Not, right. Not, endorse it, but upcycle it or, or, or some, some kind of li- lift it up without di- extinguishing it. I think that's, that's often what love does, isn't it? it love, love mm. doesn't extinguish, nor does it just complacently let something destroy itself. It transforms without, without, uh, annihilating, you know, without, without getting rid of it. And I, I love that word consecration for that kind of middle ground. That's a beautiful middle ground. I like that. You
0: have you have some really beautiful steps though in your in your workbook here. These these mental health steps that I've already referenced, even the creative prompts that you reference, um, to help people, I would argue, do just that, to let God in to consecrate their particular brand of crazy. My favorite one is you and it's something I never considered before. Like it was so cool. I wanna I'm, I'm really looking forward to doing this. There is a particular action step that you proposed where you, you asked people to sort of uh, figure out what the color palette of their life is, yes. either very abstractly by sort of meditating upon it, or you even recommend using an app that will go through your social media and actually pull colors and say like, this is the color palette you pose. Yeah. And you argued like, what other colors do you need to add to this palette basically to make it beautiful? Like right now it might be a really ugly palette, but if you can add that Van Gogh yellow, mm-hmm. that might actually make the whole palette make sense. Yeah. Talk to me about y'all's experience designing those action steps, why you felt those were important, what some of your favorites were when you did that. Because I think it's it's a super I mean, I'm just excited to do it myself. Oh, great. So I'm curious to hear about your creative process in designing them.
2: Yeah. So over the years, we've it, it reminds me of what we were talking about earlier in the conversation about the incarnation that if if God is really coming to us as a human being in Jesus of Nazareth, that means the whole human being. And a lot of what it means to be a human being is to act, you know, to, to do things, to think, to uh, download an app, to consider color, uh, to, to actually reach out, call people, have coffee. So we wanted to have not just an intellectual exercise of engaging Scripture— not just an aesthetic or visual exercise of engaging a painting or a number of paintings, but also a kind of action oriented uh, portion of the devotional. So not to say you must do these five things, but to provide you with some options and whatever resonates. And obviously it's going to resonate with different people in different ways. If this resonates for you or for your family or for your partner or or whatever, or for your congregation or for your, your larger church community, try this action out. So that's how we conceive it, is we conceive it as uh, actions that would allow us to kind of live into these ideas, not just say them, not just think them, but kind of live them out in some way that makes a real difference. And, you know, of course, that's what these ideas are for, right? You haven't really grasped any idea, at least in the Christian tradition, you haven't really grasped it unless you're, you're living it out in some way. It doesn't really count for that much if you can say the idea. I mean, that that's great. It's a helpful thing to be able to say the idea, but if that's all you can do and you're not really living it out and putting some some flesh on it, if I can say, or incarnating the idea, uh, one of my favorite theologians says, yeah, you know, Jesus is God incarnate, but we need to become incarnate. We we need to really step into our bodies and our our the the, the fullness of who we are. That's really uh, the challenge. Of uh, of incarnation is, is each human being are we need to step into to who we are so so yeah hopefully these action steps can help with that and you know some of them are playful and and maybe uh, thought thought provoking like the one you just mentioned and and others are you know really quite straightforward and simple picking up on themes either in the Van Gogh or in uh, the scripture passage of that week. And trying to say, let's let's. How, how do we incarnate this idea? One way to think of scripture is as a script, as some, you know, like a, like a script in a play. It's it's something to be performed, to give it form, to give it a beautiful form. Or another analogy we use often is to a musical score, that that theological ideas are like the notes or the black marks on a page. But they don't really matter until you play the music. You know, you gotta play it and you gotta give it some form. So that's what those action steps are designed to do.
1: You know, that that's a really helpful context to put it into because I think about um I was just thinking while you were talking that like um so I've you know I've spent a lot of the last like 10 years or so like looking at the history of Christian tradition, like thinking and talking about beauty, and the the one thing. I think this is fair to say, uh, at least until 1500. I I get bored after 1500 and stop paying attention, um, but at least till 1500, I know I could say that like the one thing that it, that Christians never say about beauty is that they never say that beauty is a spectator sport. If I could put it that way, like it's never something that you just like look at and isn't that cool. And you walk away and you're the same person you were before and after like that, that Christians are incredibly excited about beauty from top to bottom, from start to finish all the time. Um, but the reason they are is because it's transformative, because it's actually mm-hmm. something—it's right. very deep conviction. Um, not that let's not—I mean, I'm not—I'm not, I'm not going to naturalize this. They, 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 nobody's like let's not be silly. Like beauty is in a sacrament, art is in a sacrament. Um, right, right, But like, but that there's something about the way in which God reaches out to the world. Um, Whereby beauty is the particular, you could say, mechanism, so to speak, of reality by which he transforms the heart, you mm-hmm. know, to right. incarnate his beauty, his virtues, his um, his actions, his uh, who he is, you know, yes, um, and that there's some amazing and strange. And I think, like, a perpetual and fruitful question for me about the way in which, like, art and secular art, art that's not trying to be sacred art, is drawn into that. You know? Mm Because, like, Beauty's not a spectator sport. Beauty changes the heart. Like beauty is important. Beauty, like whether you know, this is why art is so significant. Like willy strictly willy nilly. Like whether we want to or not. Like if we if we open ourselves up to it at all, it changes us. Um, but like, but this does always open up then these interesting questions because it's not a sacrament. It doesn't work by it on its own. So like, you know, I'm always I'm always like vexed, like thinking about this question, thinking about this question that like you know, um you know, go to the MoMA, uh, where sure. the story, story night is held, you know, you go to the MoMA and it's all the room where the story, story night is, is always packed, you know? Yep. And there's like me, uh, you know, I've had this experience. There's like me and like my, my face is like as close as I can get to the painting without like the guy in the room yelling at me, you know, <laughs> cause I'm just seeing this like three dimensional super textuality of it, like all of this. Uh, and I'm just like, freaking out just about the way that like this is helping me see the beauty of god's creation and love it more and like be transformed by that beauty i hope in some small way um and then you know you've got your like rando tourist who just like walks up takes a photograph and walks away and then you've got the other people who are thinking about this think like isn't it great that we have beauty but we don't need god and like you know what i mean like there's all these different ways of encountering this thing so like thinking about beauty as not a spectator sport what do we do about like your 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 devotional is, if I could put it in this way, it's 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 a handbook for spectating. It's like how to look right. and see and be changed by beauty. So, like, how do we do this? What is what's going on
2: here? Well, to me, what we need in those kinds of situations, you 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 really do a great job of describing the diversities of reactions to a masterpiece like Starry Night. I think what we need in those situations is a docent. So in in the big picture, the docent for Christians is, of course, Jesus himself. He is the docent to Scripture. He is the docent to the sort of dynamics of life. I don't think—I'll speak for myself. I'm certainly not um, qualified and and well-suited to figure that all out on my own, right? So I need a docent. Now, even understanding the docent is trickier than it sounds, right? So it's not like, oh, yeah, now I have a docent. Now everything's cleared up. I need a community around me to help me interpret the docent. And that, that's what I think the church is. So the, the church is sort of the conversation that's that's around what the docent is telling us about the the world or the 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 masterpiece of creation or the masterpiece of Starry Night. So what we try to do in the devotional, like for example, with Starry Night, we, that's in there, as you might imagine. We positioned that painting on Palm Sunday. Because Palm Sunday, remember there's that, that famous line in Palm Sunday where where Jesus says, you know, if these guys weren't singing hosanna, the very stones would 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 cry out. In other words, creation would 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 erupt in praise because the Messiah has arrived. And, you know, so we're inviting you to see the starry night in that kind of way where you've got the the swirling sky and then the reaching of of creation. There's a there's a steeple, a church steeple, but also there's a cypress and they're they're, they're reaching up to the sky. So there's this kind of wonderful Uh, dialogue going on between heaven and earth, you could say, in that painting. Now, that's one way of looking at it. And what we encourage people to do is to not only use the devotional on their own, but to engage a friend, you know, maybe online or in person or whatever, or a family member, to get those kinds of conversations going. That's really what Scripture is for, is to create those conversations. And I would say in in a different register, but in the same principle, that's what great art is for. It's to stimulate those kinds of conversations. We aren't really made to figure this out alone. We're made to figure it out together and to correct each other and to say, well, I don't know about that. What about this? Or to introduce a new perspective that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise. So so I think that's the, the world we live in as we've got to move in these small groups, essentially. That's how human beings have always lived for, you know, what have we been around for 300,000 years or something like that? It's been small group life pretty much, Throughout and, and it should continue to be, especially with these important questions.
0: I'm in love with this. I say towards the end of many of our episodes with every ounce of sincerity, um, always off air that, oh my gosh, this is my favorite episode we've recorded. And, and I think that's true because, you know, consecutively it is you know, the sure, best episode yeah, we've done yeah. so far, but this Absolutely. by like 10 miles is my favorite episode that we've, this, we recorded. This oh, is, this so, is nice. so, so great. Um, since we're since you're talking about you know doing the project with friends anyway, I think this is as good a time to sort of turn this back over to our audience for 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 their thoughts and and their conjectures and to actually use the the program. Matt, tell Great. us tell us where our listeners can can find out more about Salt and also where they can pick up this project for themselves and, and use it with their spiritual communities, their families.
2: Sure. So it's all uh, available and accessible at saltproject.org. And you'll see there's a little shop, a little store right across the top bar. And you just drop that down. This is a downloadable or printable resource. Every time you order it, you get the files that you need to print it out. But you also can just use an e-reader and engage it digitally. So there's multiple files in each portfolio. And we've got a whole library there. We've got Mary Oliver and Emily Dickinson. We've got Maya Angelou, of course, Vincent van Gogh. So um, we invite anyone who's interested in the arts of language and the arts of paint, the arts of the, the visual joy of life and uh, the arts of music to visit us and see, see if we have anything that might help you in uh, the Lenten journey or the whole year journey of, of being a Christian and making our way forward. I want to thank you guys so much for inviting us and, and inviting me to be a part of this conversation. Thanks for the work you're doing. It's so important to connect these dots. So uh, I really appreciate your work. Thank you. Oh, thank
0: you so much for, for being with us Uh, again. Matthew is the creative director of salt project. You can find that at, you can find that and all the resources we've discussed today, SALTproject.org. Um, Thank you for the created things that you have created so wonderfully. My pleasure. Thanks so much. A great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, really Brady. enjoy having you. And for all of y'all at home, we wish you a very blessed and beautiful, uh, meaningful, messy, stinky, sacred, <laughs> consecrated Lent. Uh, go forth. Create cool things. This has been Created Things, an art, soul, and mind production with Jacob flores Popcheck and Father Gabriel Toretta. Production by Kyle Meineke and Jessica Flores. Theme song by Federico Caronza. For more on the podcast and on its hosts, visit artsoulandmind.com.